From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, IOL calculation after eczema refractive surgery, part one of three. There are early patients who had prior LASIK surgery, when we subjected them to cataract surgery as indicated, we were getting a hyperopic refractive outcome that was not well understood. First this, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Sam Maskett declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. Today, we start a three-part series on IOL calculation after LASIK, perhaps the largest iatrogenic problem in all of ophthalmology. The series will be practical, emphasizing strategies we can employ in our own practices. But before we begin, I want to explain why this is such a difficult problem. IOL calculation formulae use as independent variables axial length and keratometry. Axial length changes very little in keratorefractive surgery. Keratometry is the rub, for an apparent reason and for a less apparent one. Remember, the keratometer does not measure central corneal curvature. It only takes its readings paracentrally, approximately 1.5 millimeters from the cornea center. Not only are the measurements not taken from the center of the cornea, but the distance between the points of measurement and the center of the cornea varies too. The keratometer's measurements are taken more centrally in steeper corneas, and the measurements can be quite a bit further from the central cornea in the very flat corneas patients often have after LASIK. Of course, none of this matters for patients who have not undergone corneal surgery because the paracentral cornea gives a reasonable approximation of the central corneal curvature. That is, that part of the cornea that corresponds to the patient's visual axis. But after keratorefractive surgery, all bets are off. The central cornea is often a good deal flatter than the part of the cornea measured by the keratometer. The result is that the keratometer may significantly overestimate the refracting power of the cornea. And an overestimation of corneal power means an underestimation of the power of the IOL. Too low an IOL power means an irate, hyperopic patient who, not long ago, spent quite a bit of money to become emetropic. But I promised you a hidden reason too, and here it is. The keratometer does not measure, ready for this? The keratometer does not measure keratometry. What the keratometer directly measures is corneal curvature in millimeters. More specifically, anterior corneal curvature. And before you say that the corneal curvature and the corneal refractive power are the same thing, let me tell you they are not. And they are especially not the same thing after eczema photoablation. Keratometry readings in diopters are calculated values based upon the anterior curvature of the cornea. Okay, follow me on this one. The anterior corneal curvature is not the only determinant of corneal refractive power. The posterior curvature plays a small but significant role as well. We know that the cornea is thinner centrally than it is peripherally. That means that if you were to trefine a corneal button and hold it up in the air, it would actually act as a concave or minus lens. Since the air-to-tear interface of the anterior cornea is so much more powerful than the posterior cornea-to-aqueous interface, 
the cornea physiologically acts as a plus refracting element. However, the contribution of the posterior cornea is not insignificant. It is a little more than a tenth the power of the anterior surface. That means that what we call a 45 diopter cornea is really a 50 diopter anterior cornea and a minus 5 diopter posterior cornea. We could simplify the math by just reducing the anterior corneal power by about 11%. Or simpler, we could reduce the index of refraction of the cornea that we use for calculation by 11%. This is exactly what the carotometer does. It calculates the corneal refractive power by measuring the radius of curvature of the anterior cornea and employing a fudged index of refraction, reduced by 11%. This works just fine and accurately calculates corneal power by making this assumption about the relationship between the anterior and posterior corneal curvatures. In fact, this relationship between the anterior and posterior corneal curvatures holds up in patients who've undergone radial keratotomy, penetrating keratoplasty, and cataract surgery because, although the topography of the cornea may be distorted, the relationship between the anterior and posterior corneal surfaces holds fast. However, eczema photoablative surgery is different. In LASIK and PRK, the anterior curvature of the cornea is selectively changed, and the relationship between the curvatures of the front and back of the cornea the relationship on which all measures of corneal refractive power from keratometry to computerized topography is based, that relationship is altered. And it is altered by 11% of the achieved refractive result. And to compound things, this error is additive to the previously discussed error in the sense that it too will result in a hyperopic post-cataract surprise. In today's program, we hear from Sam Maskett, about an empiric regression-based approach he has taken to calculate the appropriate IOL power for cataract surgery after LASIK. Sam, can I have you describe the design of your study? We were interested in knowing that our early patients uh, who had prior LASIK surgery, when we subjected them to cataract surgery as indicated, my early experience suggested that we were getting an, a hyperopic refractive outcome that was not well understood. Um, in distinction to those patients who had had prior radial keratotomy, we noted that the same approach for this patient group, uh, the post-eczema laser photoablation group, was different than the response from the post-radial keratotomy group. And so it seemed to be necessary to understand what was the difference between these two groups of patients and how we might approach the post-photoablative group in a different way. Do you think that the reason that you were seeing more hyperopia with the eczema group than with the radial keratotomy group was because there was a greater difference between the keratometry of the central cornea, the visual axis, and the keratometry paracentrally where the keratometer was actually taking its readings? No, I, I don't think that problem applies here. Of course, I think most people have come to understand that when we measure with standard keratometry or even simulated keratometry on a topography unit, that we measure in and around the three millimeter optical zone. Now, it happens to be the flatter the cornea, the larger that zone will be and the further from the corneal apex. That comes into play very significantly in the post 
RK patient, but it is not the problem, as I view it, in calculating the post-ablative patient. And in the post-ablative patient, what we have is a change in the corneal architecture and a difference between the relationship of the anterior and posterior surfaces. If we look back a moment, I think it's unfortunately not widely recognized among clinicians, but our standard keratometers and our standard topographers have an assumption built in. Using the Gullstrand schematic eye, the back surface of the cornea is presumed to have a net power of roughly minus six diopters, or 5.88 to be more exact. And that's actually factored into a standard keratometer or topographer. So that when we read a patient's corneal curvature, and let's say for argument's sake, we read 42.5 diopters, what actually has been calibrated into the keratometer is that the anterior corneal power is 48.5 minus the 6.0 diopters for the back corneal surface or the net 42.50. Now, when we do photoablation, we alter only the anterior corneal curvature. Now, ordinarily, the anterior and posterior corneal curvatures are parallel or nearly parallel. Actually, the posterior surface is slightly steeper than the anterior, but for argument's sake, we can assume they're near parallel. That relationship changes greatly once we do a photoablative surgery. And in the postmyopic ablation, only the anterior surface has been flattened. And so now the relationship between these near parallel surfaces has been changed, and the minus six takes on a much greater value. So when we read with a keratometer or a topographer, for argument's sake, 39 diopters, actually the number is significantly lower. And the machines overestimate the corneal power after myopic photoablation. Likewise, they underestimate the corneal power after hyperopic photoablation. Now, if we go back to the radial keratotomy eye, the parallel relationship between the anterior and posterior corneal curvatures remains. Both surfaces are flattened. And so if you can achieve a central or near-central corneal curvature reading, it will be accurate. The situation is not the same in the post-ablative cornea where there's now a change in relationship of the surfaces and they're no longer parallel and therefore the minus six becomes a higher number one that is not really known. But what I did realize not too long after I started doing cataract surgery in patients who had prior photoablation, that there was a seemingly proportional relationship to the amount of ablation and the optical error that we discovered after we had done their cataract surgery. And I was able to establish a very simple ratio and then apply that concept to uh, 30 patients and then Working backwards then, I was able to establish a regression formula, which in fact does reflect that there is a greater error in reading the post-ablative cornea for a greater amount of myopic photoablation. Sam, can you tell me precisely what the formula is? Yeah. Let me just go backwards um, about the formula. The reason I say that is we have to talk about, uh, and people, I get emails from people all the time 
they're confused as to how I'm measuring corneal power and what have you. And the point is that we bypass it completely. So let me mention that, and then I'll talk about what this formula represents is an alteration in the calculated IOL power, not the, the corneal curvature. Sam, can you tell me how this formula is applied? What I derived was a formula to alter the intraocular lens power that is measured from the post-ablative eye. The patient is evaluated at the IOL master or by immersion, uh, A-scan ultrasonography, and standard keratometry or the, kerat- the keratometry, uh, keratometry readings that we get from the IOL master are, uh, are determined as though the patient had no prior surgery. They're seated at the IOL master or what have you, and we then look at the numbers that the uh, that it, the machine has derived. I bypass alteration of corneal curvature, and I only make a correction to the intraocular lens power. So, for argument's sake, if the patient, if the biometry for a given patient says to use an 18 diopter lens, I will then subject that 18 diopter power to the formula. Now, the formula says the following. We multiply the amount of laser vision correction corrected for vertex distance times minus 0.326 and then add to that plus 0.101. Notice that the number is a minus number. So as an example, if the patient had six diopters of myopic ablation, that would be a minus six times a minus number. And that would give us a plus net effect on intraocular lens power. So back to the example I mentioned before, if the the machine said to use an 18 diopter lens, and I'm now going to alter the IOL power by the fact that the patient had a six diopter myopic photoablation, We'd multiply 6 times minus 3.26, add 0.101, and that would then give us roughly a 2-diopter difference. So we would add the 2-diopters to the 18-diopter that was calculated by the IOL master, and we would use a 20-diopter lens. Contrary, supposing the patient had hyperopic photoablation and the IOL master said to use a 19-diopter lens. And in this given example, perhaps the patient had three diopters of hyperopic photoablation. We would then multiply the plus three times minus 0.326 and add 0.101. And that would give us approximately a one-diopter minus adjustment because a plus hyperopic treatment times the minus factor means that we get a minus net change. And that situation would be about a one diopter reduction in power. And so instead of using the 19 that was calculated by the machine, we would then use an 18 diopter lens. I tend to use either the Hagus or the SRKT formula for previously myopic eyes. And I will use either the Hoffer Q or holiday for previously hyperopic eyes. If 
uh, one uses the holiday two formula, it is imperative that one does not check yes for prior refractive surgery because in my schema, the idea is to evaluate the eye, just measure the eye as no prior surgery was done, take that IOL power and then adjust it by the formula based upon the amount of prior photoablative uh, surgery. Sam, how many patients were involved in the derivation of this formula? Uh, in the derivation of this formula, there were 23 prior myopic patients and seven hyperopic patients. Sam, did you do a verification series, a set of patients uh, to whom to apply this formula to see how the formula did? Oh, certainly. We continue to treat according to that formula. And, you know, the number of patients uh, who have had prior uh, keratorefractive surgery uh, seems to be on the increase as patients age or as patients are referred to me because of my interest in this arena. And the formula just continues to be remarkably accurate. To this day, I have not had a patient um, outside of the uh, study parameters. And in that particular investigation, we found that the greatest myopic error was 0.75 in only two patients, and the range was up to plus 50. So we had a very, very small range of error. And in that investigation, 28 of the 30 patients were within plus or minus 50 of emetropia. And we continue to find those results, and we use that formula on a regular basis. And virtually every week now, I'm doing at least one or two patients fed prior laser vision correction. I'm tickled that it's working as well as it is. In, in one patient, in fact, 27 diopters of prior myopic laser ablation have been carried out many years ago in Canada. I don't think anyone today would even consider doing that kind of surgery, but she was done with a multi-zone technique and actually did rather well. She had a very, very small central zone, but um, we made a nine diopter adjustment in the IOL power and it worked out to be very accurate. So because I am as accurate as I feel I need to be with this formula, uh, I've had the opportunity now to implant multifocal IOLs in a number of patients following LASIK surgery and find that they do extremely well. Uh, of course, it's imperative that we are, are emetropic or near emetropic, but the formula has worked very, very well for these post-LASIK patients who are desirous of multifocal technology. Now, Sam, most of the patients who are not emetropic postoperatively wound up being mildly myopic, which from my standpoint is great. If I'm going to err, I would rather err on the side of making someone a little bit minus than a little bit plus. But why do you think that this happened? Well, one of the issues, of course, is that there are post-refractive surgery changes that are very difficult for us to measure changes in epithelial thickness, and we know that the epithelium tends to fill in to a certain extent. And so I'm going to, uh, my sense is that, first of all, we have the human variability. We have a bell-shaped curve in everything we do. But also, I mean, if, if I, when I think about it, it probably has more to do with the fact that there's been some degree of emetropization by the epithelium, and so we may have a slight overcorrection with our formula. When I say slight overcorrection, I mean, we're talking there was a mean myopic area here of uh, 0.15 diopters. Now, Sam, I'm going to ask you a bit of an involved question, and it's this. As you mentioned earlier, 
unlike radial keratotomy and conductive keratoplasty and penetrating keratoplasty, uh, there's something special that goes on in eczema ablative surgery. And it's the change in the relationship between the anterior and posterior curvatures of the cornea. And that in the machines that we use to measure corneal power, things like the keratometer or the um, uh, video keratographer, all, all of these machines used a fudged index of refraction of the cornea of about 1.337 instead of the real corneal stroma uh, of 1.375. And they do this to account for the relationship between the posterior curvature and the anterior curvature of the, of the cornea. And we know that in eczema laser photoablative surgery that that relationship is violated. When you assess how much that fudging accounts for the posterior corneal curvature, you find that it is adjusting the power of the anterior power of the cornea by about 11%, or fudging the index of refraction by about 11%. Now, as you said earlier, this will result in an overestimation of the central corneal power. My question is this. Your formula adjusts the eczema uh, ablated central corneal power by 30%. And we know that the change that's attributable to this fudged index is about 11%. My question is, where, where does the other 20% adjustment that your formula introduces, where does that 20% come from? Do you follow what I'm saying? Um, yes, but I'm not sure that you're barking up the right tree. There are several theories as to why our automated devices or even our manual devices error in the post-ablative cornea. There have been those who have suggested that the index of refraction itself may differ from the anterior and posterior corneal stroma, and so that we're taking off uh, tissue that may have a different index of refraction in the back cornea. People also assume that thickness may play a role, and people also assume that there can be an alteration in back corneal curvature, and there is some literature that reflects this. But to me, I think it's, it's much more simplistic to just look at the relationship between the curvatures of the anterior and posterior surface and their, their loss of that parallel nature. I think that the assumption that, and, and again, in accord with the gull strand schematic eye of a roughly minus six diopter posterior corneal surface is a simple enough explanation when you no longer have parallel surfaces where the minus six based upon its curvature will now take on a higher value and that will be proportional to the altered relationship between the anterior and posterior corneal curvatures. So I'm not really certain that the kind of fudged index of refraction that the manufacturers put in these machines to make up for this, this relationship between the corneal surfaces really is as important as just the alteration in the curvatures. Sam, I think that this formula is great, not just because you got very good results uh, in, your, in your study, but because it is a simple formula. It's something that I'm going to have no problem uh, employing in, in the midst of a, a busy day of seeing patients. What do you do in your own practice now 
outside of this study, when someone comes in for cataract surgery who's previously had LASIK or PRK done? most important thing for me to do is obtain their records from their treating center or treating physician. And I've gone to great lengths from patients who've had treatment in South America, Europe, or what have you, because the, the great weakness of my formula is that I must know what was their prior prescription. Now, my preference and what I like and what I did use to determine the formula was the amount of laser vision correction that was delivered to the cornea after the correction for vertex distance. So when I got the printout from the uh, laser machine, everything was, was very simple for me, and I was able to do that in all of the study patients. But in the real world, sometimes it's difficult to obtain that. And so I'll ask a patient to supply an old pair of glasses or if they knew their contact lens prescription or their contact lens practitioner, we will make every attempt to get that information so that I have as close to the exact numbers as possible. And once I have that information, then we have the patient. I, I try to do everyone at the IOL master. There are, you know, occasional cataracts. Uh, that particularly posterior subcapsular cataracts that mandate that we use a scan, and I, I like immersion only. But in any case, we then calculate the patient just as I explained in the paper. We calculate them as no surgery was done. I then look at the different formulae based upon what is the axial length and the prior treatment. And I'm finding that I'm leaning more now toward the Hagus formula for myopic eyes. And the reason I mention that is that the Hagus formula does not look upon pre-surgical uh, corneal curvature to determine post-operative AC depth, whereas the other formulae do. And that's why the Aramberry double K method has also proven to be very helpful because the flattened post-ablative cornea will fool some of the formulas into thinking that the chamber depth is actually shallower than it turns out to be. But given that the Hagus formula bypasses this, then I'm, I'm tending to use the Hagus formula for our highly ablated myopic eyes. And I find that it works very, very well. So I sit here with a calculator and I take a look at the amount of prior treatment and I just multiply it out. And it's very close to one diopter of intraocular lens power change for three diopters of ablation, either hyperopic or myopic. Sam Maskett, thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Josh. I, I, listen, I have all of my respect and all of my admiration for what you're doing. Sam Maskett is president of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery and clinical professor of ophthalmology at the Jules Stein Eye Institute at the Geffen School of Medicine at the University of California in Los Angeles, in Los Angeles, California. His paper, Simple Regression Formula for Intraocular Lens Power Adjustment in Eyes Requiring Cataract Surgery After Eczema Laser Photoablation, appears in the March 2006 issue of the Journal of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Ask questions of Dr. Maskett or any of our previous guests 
or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines. In the United States, dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the New Media Project of the NYU School of Medicine and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.